Welcome back to Spiritual Directors Talking About Stuff. Today, we had a conversation with Maureen O'Connell, who is a professor at LaSalle University, and we were talking to her about her most recent book that came out called Undoing the Knots. And uh, this this book was about how she researched her, her family's history and, and um, Catholic faith history uh, related to racism. And it was a really fascinating conversation. Uh, we touched on all kinds of different mm-hmm. um, all time, all kinds of different topics. Yeah, it was really interesting. You know, I was raised Catholic um, and uh, identify more on the in the Protestant tradition now. But um, you know, this this isn't a conversation that is just for racism in the Catholic Church. Like it really is uh, systemic in uh, in mm-hmm. all of our churches in America and around the globe as well. I really appreciated the thought that she put in the questions that she asked um, in order to to write this book, even though it is, you know, from her personal view as a, as a Catholic in the Northeast. Um, but it was, oh my gosh, it was such a great conversation. Chris, what do you think that you'll remember most from this conversation? Um, I really enjoyed the, the part where we talked about how uh, racism is, is not just about my individual actions or, or my individual beliefs on other people and, and race, but it's, it's a much bigger systemic issue. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the church has historically really just focused a lot on, on my individual sins or my individual piety. And so w- we don't see the bigger picture, which um, that at least, at least in the U S racism is much more of a systemic issue and, and is often built into um, the structure of the, the way the country is built and our laws, just looking at it as mm-hmm. a heart issue uh, on individual Christians is really just myopic and it's much bigger than that. So we need to kind of move our views from just our, our little box of, of what I believe about race and what, you know, how does it, how does it actually present in the culture and in the, in the systems so what about you, Maggie? Yeah, I would say it's very similar. Just this idea that, um, you know, I love when we talked about the image of God and how it's stamped on each of us individually. And because we all look different just from, um, you know, we're built differently. We are different races. We have different hair color. We have different eye color. You know, everything about, um, about humans is everyone's unique. And so, that just shows that the image of God is more about like who we are and the love that we can have for other people. And, and I think that the image of God is also, yes, it is us as individuals, but it's also about society, uh, culture, looking like the image of God, having that, Mm -hmm. that belovedness stamped um, on us as, as a society that reflects that reflects the soul of God. Well, it was a um, wide ranging conversation and we touched on lots of really, really interesting things, lots of great things. So um, we hope that you enjoy this conversation with Maureen O'Connell. Our guest today is Maureen O'Connell. Maureen is an associate professor at LaSalle University. After years of anti-racism work that she often described as tying her up in knots of defensiveness and anxiety, 
she decided to interrogate how her devoutly Catholic family's mantra to be good and give back actually set her up for failure when it comes to faith and racial justice work. The result of this research is her book, Undoing the Knots, Five Generations of American Catholic Anti-Blackness, which we'll be discussing today. This book draws on family stories and archival research. Maureen excavates this history to understand white Catholics' current relationship to racial inequality in the United States and how that history both positions Catholics to be part of the struggle for racial justice and makes them dangerously unprepared for and likely resistant to what that struggle will demand of them. What a fascinating story, Maureen, and I really look forward to diving into this with you today. So thank you for being with us. Yeah, thank you so much for the invitation. The way we start out with all of our guests is that we like to ask them to tell us a little bit about their faith background mm-hmm. and kind of what brought them to kind of how they, or where they are today. And that kind of helps us set the stage for the conversation. Sure. Thank you. Um, well, I was, uh, I'm raised Roman Catholic and I am a practicing, a practicing Catholic, or at least I try to be a practicing Catholic, but you know, um, as is the case for probably many people um, who are, are connected to or, or dedicate their lives to um, their religious traditions, there's a lot about that that is challenging and certainly in the context of racial justice, but also um, in terms of, of gender justice, uh, that's increasingly challenging and challenging to do. But I, I am Catholic and I, um, I became a, a theologian um, a few years after I graduated as an undergrad in a degree in history because um, I was exposed through the study of theology to all sorts of things that I did not know about my faith tradition, its history, some of its teachings, interpretations of texts, the tremendous role of women. Um, And so that's something that um, I I reveled in those kind of discoveries and one of the reasons that I became a theologian. Um, So as a Catholic woman, being a theologian is is sort of the place that I can contribute um, to the life of my my faith community and certainly um, in the institutions to which I belong, both parish um, and my and my university, it's a Catholic university um, in the Christian brother tradition. Um, so you know, I I I kind of think about theology as this ongoing process of discoveries and epiphanies, and I love this. I love my tradition for all of the all of the things that it continues to reveal to me when I go looking for them, and sometimes when I don't. <laughs> Yeah, Maureen, I'm so excited to hear a little bit more about all of that. I also was raised Catholic until, you know, in the third grade, I was bored with church and decided that meant I didn't believe in God. Um, you know, even in seminary and learning about, you know, the roots of Christianity and this faith, which was the Catholic tradition until like only until, you know, the Protestant Reformation. But um, I have really learned that there is such a beauty in uh, the, the, the depths of relationship with God that Catholics understand that a lot of other Christian traditions don't. And so, no, I mean, I think, um, one of the things that I, that really does resonate with me, with my tradition is all of these different access points to God that the Catholic tradition really affords and the variety of cultural ways that um, Christians who also happen to be Catholic have tried to express that and tap into that and explore that. Um, And, you know, um, 
being an, you know, being mostly an Irish Catholic, I've been rediscovering some of the Celtic roots of that, right? And how rich that is and, um, and that that is always something that's possible and that we're always co-creating in some ways with God, the avenues to God in our own lived experience. So, um, yeah, I, I, I hear what you're saying. And like, I, you know, my, um, my first courses in theology and then the work I did in my doctoral program, it just was a ton of fun for some of the reasons mm-hmm. that you just said, Maggie, that the exposure to a tradition that's so bigger than what we experience perhaps in our own, um, our own formations or our own growing ups. And yet at the same time, totally uh, speaks to or relates to, or is accessible through that kind of um, immediate and small and interpersonal experience that we have with God. I, yeah, I like that a lot. That resonates. That depth of spirituality is, seems to be, conspicuously missing in the Protestant world that I grew up in. And, um, and so, you know, when I was exposed to and learned more about Catholicism, I really uh, also really appreciated that depth of spirituality. Yeah. It comes from, it comes through that tradition in the bio. I, I, I mentioned that you were, when you did anti-racism work, that it tied you up in knots of defensiveness and anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. Can you tell us more about that and how that may have led you down this, uh, this path of investigating that history? I'm an ethicist by training, so a Christian ethicist. So, um, and certainly, you know, in my work as an ethicist, I was very interested or, or concerned with or, or wanted to focus on experiences of inequality. Um, and I was really thinking about sexual inequality or the inequality, you know, generated by, by sexism. And then this is a roundabout way to the answer to your question, Christopher, but 9-11 happened when I was in coursework at Boston College getting my degree. And that kind of really interrupted the whole plan that I thought that I would have for my dissertation. I was going to do something on women and work. And there was something about the way that we as a culture were trying to wrestle with suffering after 9-11 and God's role in suffering and, and seeing people of faith traditions really mess it up in terms of trying to respond to 9-11 or to think about what justice required. Um, and so I really then kind of turned to some of the, the work of some political theologians. So people who try to figure out Christianity's response to the Holocaust. Um, and the role of suffering and remembering suffering and turning to face unjust suffering and not just unjust suffering that sort of happens, but that happens at the hands of other people. Uh, and I found that very compelling. Um, and so I, you know, I ended up doing a lot of work in, in political theology and thinking about the virtue of compassion. Um, and then, but interestingly, I mean, race kind of came up in my dissertation because I had a case study that was responding to Hurricane Katrina, but, but not, re- not, as, not as fundamentally as it could be. So I started to ask myself those questions of like, well, why is it so hard for white Christians or white Catholics to turn and face that kind of suffering? Um, and then I found that when I would, you know, did make the commitment to say, yeah, I think that this one, I want this to be a central question that I'm trying to wrestle with vocationally, whether as a theologian doing writing or as a theologian trying to do some public thought scholarship or even in my classrooms, I just realized how ill-equipped I was to do that kind of racial justice work because my Catholic upbringing did not equip me with the kind of skill sets that I think we need to bring as white people to movements for justice. So, you know, for example, um, 
there was, you know, a fair amount of a sense of like, well, we look at communities through a lens of need and particularly communities of color. And then we respond out of largesse um, to communities that uh, of color that we understand largely in terms of need. And, you know, finally, you know, working side by side with people of color who were like, yeah, we're not defined by our need mm-hmm. um, and our skill sets and, and, the, and the gifts that we have to offer to movements of racial justice are often overlooked because white people come in and are able to command the space and able to set the agenda and able to decide what's going to happen and who's going to do it often, you know, primarily through this lens of need. And my intentions could have been good enough, but um, you know, there was a way in which I was really blind to so to so many facets of, of racial inequity and of, of racism um, that actually made me then kind of contribute <laughs> to the harm that people were experiencing. And so then the knot, you know, you get tied up in a knot because, or I found myself getting tied up in knots because I found myself saying, well, look, I'm one of the people who's here. There's not a whole lot of us in the, you know, there's not a whole lot of white Catholics that are showing up in many ways for some of this work in our institutions or in our parishes. And, you know, and and then sort of feeling a little bit entitled by that or feeling, you know, um, feeling to use um, Robin DiAngelo's work kind of fragile and brittle around that and recognizing that I I end up hijacking what might be trying to unfold in a group or a commitment that a group of people are having, or I end up kind of packing up my toys and going home. And like, that is not, that is not the response um, that this moment calls for, that justice is calling for. um, And that I kind of have increasingly in lots of different ways realized that there are other resources in the Catholic tradition, the Christian tradition and the Catholic tradition that can help me show up more whole and help me show up um, better prepared to contribute what I have to something that's bigger than me. And yet at the same time, incredibly important, not just to me, um, but you know, to, my, to the communities of which I, to which I belong or to which I am a member, you know? Um, so yes, and it's been a, like, it's been, it's, it ha- it's ongoing, it's, it's ongoing. Um, you know, just went through a process in my own university of, of filling out, um, you know, a, a call to, to put together a search committee for a critical leadership position and realized like, well, maybe I made some decisions for the people of color who are always serving on all of these positions mm-hmm. that I wouldn't nominate them rather than going to them and say, would you like me to nominate you? <laughs> like I made mm-hmm. the decision for them. And I just did that mm-hmm. just now. I just did that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's an ongoing process of, of learning and, and self-awareness and again, relying on tools other than guilt and shame um, that we're really good at in the Catholic tradition um, and moving more towards you know, self-awareness and responsibility and um, compassion for ourselves um, and a firm commitment to stay in things when they get uncomfortable. In your book, you use the term white-sidedness, which I love. And can you unpack that and what you mean by white-sidedness? And I'm not sure if that's uniquely, it's probably not uniquely my, I don't think, I mean, yeah. I pulled from so many different sources and, um, and I'm grateful to the 
the scholarship of so many people who've been at this work for such a long time. Um, you know, I just think it's a kind of a kind of uh, blinders that we wear, or it's another way of of talking about white centeredness, or it's another way mm-hmm. of talking about a kind of white normativity where whiteness is just the norm. It's just it's it's so pervasive in the way that we as white people understand ourselves, and that self understanding is reinforced everywhere. That we're able to move through the world most of the time without even being aware of that facet of our identity. But in a race conscious society, it's the primary facet of our identity, whether we want it to be or not, especially when we think about the way that our goods in our society, the things that we need to live in life and community are often distributed according to, you know, racial hierarchies. So it's a kind of, it's a kind of obliviousness. Sometimes it's, it's rooted in ignorance and we really don't know, but then sometimes to get altimistic about it, you know, Thomas Aquinas had this category of, you know, um, voluntary ignorance that we can choose to remain ignorant about things. And we're then culpable for that kind of, um, that kind of intentional blindness. So I I think that white sightedness is a combination of, a combination of the two. So when you talk about white sightedness and, and racial equity in your university, or even just in your, you know, in the church as well, what, how are you met by that? Maybe especially with other white people. It's a mix. I I will say that as I was, you know, preparing for the book to come out, I was increasingly anxious. And like I appreciate speaking with folks who are spiritual directors because I, you know, I, I did a bit of a, a novena to Mary Undoer of Knots, who I'm kind of intoning with the title of, of the book. And yeah. I did a lot of praying um, to, you know, the God of wisdom or, or God understood as wisdom, because I was anticipating a ton of, of real pushback and a ton of, of, um, of vitriol and just a kind of an mm. assault because I, I feel in this book, like I have turned my, I think all writers and all authors feel like it's a very vulnerable thing mm-hmm. to write a book. But like I turned myself inside out in this book and I turned my family inside out in this book. So I, it's written from a very vulnerable place. So I was very anxious um, and it's been out for about six weeks. And it's very interesting. I have not I've not had the onslaught that I was anticipating. And I'm not sure, I don't know that that necessarily means that everybody's on board. I actually just wonder if some, a fair number of white people are just kind of tired and have kind of checked out, which I think is unfortunate because that's also not the reaction um, that we need or that I would hope for. Um, In general, the way the responses that I have received to this work, you know, in the earlier stages of doing it and sharing some of it, and even since it's been out, it's kind of falls on two, two sort of trajectories or two paths. There's a group of folks who are able to say, this mirrors my experience in X, Y, or Z ways. And I've heard from a lot, a lot of different people who maybe I've worked with in the past or there was an article that ran here in the Philadelphia Inquirer. Some people reached out who said, this mirrors my experience in XYZ parish, right? Mm-hmm. Only my priest said this, or this is the stance that we took. So in some ways it might be, I'm hoping that it opens up an avenue for a kind of confession that I think um, can do what the sacrament of reconciliation is to do, is to help us 
um, acknowledge wrong so that we can move more fully in different directions and towards towards a different future, towards reestablishing mm-hmm. relationship and uh, with others, with self and with God. And then there's others, you know, who are um, some responses are still folks who are really understandably defensive um, that, you know, uh, this I'm, I'm, I'm missing the, the, the history of anti-Catholicism in the United States. Um, I'm missing the fact that, um, you know, immigrants arrived here at the end of slavery and had really nothing to do with the origins of, of, you know, a slave economy in the United States. Um, you know, that we live in parishes that are, are really multicultural and are, are, are really trying to do the best they can. And I think, you know, all of those responses to my mind just require compassion because I think that they are um, exemplars of white Catholics who have been formed to respond precisely that way because of the way in which we have siloed at best, but really generally silenced a history of the church's complicity um, in racing much of the globe, never mind our own cities and parishes, um, the roles that the church played in messaging around um, how to engage with poverty that racism obviously has generated um, in the United States. Um, a dearth of sacramental resources and ritual to help us um, own sins like this, social sins, cultural sins, even interpersonal sin um, of racism to help us heal, um, to show up differently. So, you know, when I get those responses from folks, I really do try to take a compassionate stance and say, I too felt those. And I didn't like that being the primary reaction that I had and I wanted to find another way of responding. And so to my mind, the book for me begins with telling truth about our history, um, because then I think that gives us integrity when we show up in spaces where people know that history far better than we do. We've done our homework. We know our history. We know the things that went wrong in the past, and we want to avoid repeating those past mistakes. Um, And we've got some spiritual tools and resources that can help us be more fully human, more whole humans in this collective work of uh, liberation from all of the different oppressive forms that racism takes, including on us as white people. In, in um, the right of reconciliation, I mean, I think it's, you know, like I mentioned to you, I, I come from a Protestant background, so reconciliation is not a thing. Yes. Um, at least the, the right of reconciliation. We like to reconcile from time mm-hmm. to time. But um, so, I mean, that is geared towards, um, you know, individual sin. Like, how did I sin in the last, since, mm-hmm. you know, the last time I came to confession? And I know a lot of the church's teachings, at least in, in my history, has been geared towards um, individual piety. Mm-hmm. How do we move from that to seeing this um, s- systemic and structural sin of racism mm-hmm. kind of get out of our own little box to see that it's much more pervasive than just me and just you? It's such a great question. I, the person that I used, and you'll be happy to know Christopher, he too is Protestant. Um, thinking about this is Joseph Barnt. Um, you know, he's a, um, an anti-racist trainer and thinker and, um, and theologian. And he, um, in his book called Becoming an Anti-Racist Church, 
lifts up a notion of sin that I had never, I had never heard. So through my, through my studies, you know, my doctoral studies got exposed to liberation theology, which really the liberation theologians of Latin America really broke open notions of sin beyond interpersonal sin to think about social sin, the sin of structures and institutions in which we are all trapped, particularly in a global economy. And I, I found that that's a very, that's a very helpful way of thinking about racism as a form of social sin. Interestingly, we don't have a lot, at least in the Catholic tradition, of bishops talking about sin that way. They still talk about it very much in this interpersonal way. But that's where I think that Barnes' way of thinking about the sin of racism as captivity is really helpful and like resonates with the sense of wanting to be undone from things. And so Barnes talks about um, racism as, as, a, as something that is holding all of us captive, is something that is keeping all of us from being able to live in right relationship with ourselves, with God and with other people, and even with creation, because race creates these you know, false constructs of what it means to be human based on your, you know, your presentation, um, your skin type, all of which deny each of us the distinctiveness of being made um, in a multicultural image of God, right? It denies the very multiplicity of God, racism, um, never mind sort of, you know, the unique stamp of God, the divine stamp of God in each individual person. Um, and so, you know, he really talks then, if we think about race in terms of captivity, um, it is something that we need to be liberated from. It is not something that we can necessarily um, sort of simply confess in order to be freed from, but it's like much like the story of Exodus. It's, it's a work of, of, of liberation where we work in partnership with God to free ourselves from, um, in this case, sort of the idol of racial constructions of human beings. Um, and to my mind, there's something that's really inviting about that because it can help us tap into the richness of Exodus stories in the context of race. And I don't think we often do think about the Exodus event in the context, perhaps white people don't, certainly peoples of color think about Exodus um, as, a, as a story of liberation from the freedom of oppression of slavery or of racism, but white people don't necessarily think about that story in that way. Mm -hmm. So it opens up all sorts of stories, but it also says that, you know, um, to be freed from captivity requires an ongoing commitment is, is something that we actively engage in. It's not a, it's not a forgiveness that we some, in some ways passively receive through the grace of the spirit, but it's something that we are actively contributing to or contributing, participating, that would be the word, participating in with the grace of the spirit to undo. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that there's a lot of, there's a lot of possibility because to my mind, that is invitational you know, thinking about, you know, racism as a sin of captivity, it is not, it is not damning and it is not shaming. Um, it is not otherizing. Um, it acknowledges that this is part of the human condition. It acknowledges that um, it is something that can be undone, that we can be released from, and that we can be actively engaged uh, together in doing that work. So, you know, when people like Cornell West says there's, there's freedom in the struggle for justice, that makes sense to me in thinking about 
when we start to try to undo or, or free ourselves from this captivity, the sin of captivity of racism, we do experience a kind of freedom. Um, even when we get it wrong, we experience a kind of freedom because we, are, we know that we're participating in the ongoing liberatory work of God. And, and to me, that is, um, there's such solace in that and there's such courage in that. And there is the very things that I need in order to, you know, not take my toys home from the sandbox or mm -hmm. to check out when I, when I'm, you know, because of, as of being a white woman, I'm, I, I have the freedom to check out whenever I want. Um, mm -hmm. It keeps me, it keeps me connected in that work. Um, and then that anxiety starts to dissipate and the fear of getting it wrong or the defensiveness about, you know, being labeled in certain ways or having my actions be assessed in certain ways. I don't spend the energy there. I spend the energy in other places. And I, I'm, I'm going to ask a question and I am generally curious because I don't know the answer, but what messaging, if any, has Pope Francis made on um, anti-racism? Um, you know, I think that he has had, he's made some, some statements, certainly um, when we saw the, um, the uh, the big protests and the unrest after the after the death of unarmed black people at the hands of police in the United States, he made some he made some comments. Um, I think he is um, his own roots in in um, in um, in Argentina brought him close into community organizing as a framework for responding to social inequality. And I think, you know, a, an awareness then of the power dynamics at play in racism. Mm -hmm. um, but to my mind, a place that he offers a really important tool is he wrote a, uh, an encyclical letter whose name frustrated me when I first heard it because it's called Fratelli Tutti. And it's really like on, on social friendship or on social connection, but the masculine language just kind of had me really just so frustrated because it, it, to my mind, still reflects the growing edges of, ongoing growing edges of our church. But he talks a lot in there about commonality and commonality and social bonds that are things that we construct across the, the boundaries of difference that our societies create for us. So I think of all of the, of the popes of, you know, of recent memory, it seems to me that he is somebody who gets that more structural dimension of it. I think he gets the power dimension of it. I think he gets the possibility for um, more activist or social organizing frameworks to respond to it. And all of that is incredibly helpful. And I think a big departure from some of his predecessors who, mm -hmm. if they were pressed to think about it or speak about it, and including here in the United States, it was always through that very individualistic conversion of hearts lens, right? Mm -hmm. Even reluctance to still reluctance to name the dynamics of racism at work in the, within the church, um, and he seems less reluctant to do so. And I think that's a really good, I think that's a very hopeful thing to my mind. What do you see for like this hope of the future of the church in terms of diversity and unity? I mean, I do think that, you know, we've heard, I, I would agree with the folks who say like, bring different people together is just not simply enough. Um, you know, just because you have, you know, people of different cultures in the same space, if they're not really engaging one another, then that's, that's, yeah, yeah that might actually be doing more harm. Um, 
hmm. more harm than good in terms of trying to build unity. So, I mean, I, the, the thing that, one of the things that I think could be hopeful and one of the reasons that I wanted to, to do this book, write this book or write this book about my family's history, we're getting close to St. Patrick's Day. Um, and, you know, my family is predominantly, predominantly Irish. My all Irish husband was a little bit chagrined to learn that I was not as fully Irish as he thought. He thought that I did like a bait and switch. And I was like, well, you can see my German tendencies in here. I am, but getting ready to celebrate St. Patrick's Day, I can remember a number of years ago, kind of when I started to write the book saying to my mother, well, what unique things did you do? Or do you remember your grandmother who was born? So my great grandmother was born in Ireland, her grandmother. What do you remember Mima doing? What did she do on St. Patrick's Day? Or maybe not even on St. Patrick's Day, but what were the distinctively Irish things about her Catholicism that she brought? And my mother really could not remember. And I don't think it was just simply because my mother was little, but I think it was because Belinda and Edward Hargaden, who arrived in the early 1900s, were kind of given a choice. You can become American Catholics. And to become American Catholics, you've kind of got to let go mm. of all of that, all of that cultural distinctiveness stuff. And it was a bargain that they made. And I think my own success and where I am three generations on from that is sort of like the, you know, the payoff of that bargain of completely separating themselves from the distinctiveness mm. of their of their Catholic ethnic culture and Irish Catholics very quickly in sort of doing the, the work of this book, like Irish Catholics were the ones who became in many ways, the leader of the leaders of the church and also kind of stamped out some of the other European ethnic identities mm -hmm. in the church in order to become this, like this American Catholic thing, which still to this day is synonymous with whiteness. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so many people are surprised to learn how many, how many black Catholics there are. People are so surprised to learn how old the traditions of Latino and multicultural, the traditions of Latino Catholicism are in different pockets of the United States. When we hear American thought Catholicism, we still think of it as largely a white thing. So I wanted to go back in because like, I feel like I'm, I lost out. I would like to know what some of those culturally distinctive Celtic elements of my Christianity and my Catholic background are because I need those saints. Like some of them are on the wall behind me. Like I yeah. need them. I need their cultural practices. I need to know, well, what was it that they did to stay in struggles for, um, for equity or to resist oppression or how did they stay connected to God in the middle of, of, of struggle or how did they, what resources did they use to build community when there are all of these forces um, that we're trying to separate people because we, we need them now. Um, and communities of color who were not given the option, so Black Catholics or Latino Catholics who were not given the option of trading in their Blackness, you know, or their, their Mexicanness or their Spanishness or their, um, you know, their Guatemala-ness. And I know I'm being incredibly culturally dense in how I'm trying to say this, but all of the distinctiveness of within Latin American Catholicism, those folks weren't given that option. Mm -hmm. They weren't, you know, white privilege, not whiteness in the United States, did not, they, they didn't have a choice to hand it over. They held on to those distinctive things. And those things are huge resources for, for those cultures and those people. And they have sustained Black Catholics and Latino Catholics and Asian American Catholics through incredible, incredible hardship and also um, 
and also bring them really fully alive to liturgical mm-hmm. celebrations and fully alive into an awareness of a liturgical calendar that is uniquely part of their culture. And, and so, you know, to, my, to answer the long-winded answer to your question, like diversity isn't just about being able to know what those things are, but to pull them together so that we have this shared um, wealth of resources to pull from in order to be quote unquote Catholic in, in America or Christian in America. And in a way that can help us see um, that we experience a unity when we experience our particularity in conversation with or, or in worship with or in deep reflection with somebody who comes from a very different cultural reality. And I do think that Pope Francis in this call in the Catholic church to a synod process is creating the possibility of that because he's inviting Catholics to come together in small groups of conversation to really share their faith journeys and to share the the resources that, um, and the stories that have kept them Catholic and and the hurts and the pains that they have and the dreams that they have for the future of the church. He wants those to be incredibly multicultural Um, sessions. And I get the sense that he thinks the way that we unleash a multicultural church is if we Mm -hmm. encounter each other in our distinctiveness, Mm -hmm. which is, I think, a bit different than let's just bring people who are together different and assume in just being together, we're going to achieve some kind of unity. And and I don't think that we, I don't think that's the way to it. There's, uh, I have a small group through my church that, um, you know, we meet every week and over time, you know, over the past few years, we've had a few different women come in and out. And at one point we had, you know, three or four black women. And then there was, you know, I mean, the church is general is still a white church in America. So there are still quite a few white people, but now we have a solid, like seven girls and there's one black and the other six of us are white. And, uh, you know, she and I have had co- the other black girl and I've had conversations. We're, we're really close and we always stay on after small group and talk a little bit and, mm-hmm it's with me that she actually talks about things like racism in America mm-hmm. and what it's like to be black. And I feel like because she can open up and actually share about her experiences, not that she can't in our other, in like the, with the rest of the group, it's just, um, I guess it's just our relationship of being able yeah. to truly yeah. come together and share experiences and open my eyes to the fact that that I see my small group as a white small group with one black person in it, you know, and that is not doing any of us any favors. Mm -hmm. And then to embrace, you know, just the fact that we have seven different viewpoints and lives lived that we can all learn from each other and enhance our relationship with Jesus in, you know, just by like sharing these things. And And so I feel way more unified with uh, every girl individually than I do with the seven of us in a group. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's powerful. And that's a powerful thing to share. Right. And maybe that group is on some kind of journey, Mm -hmm. right. To get to the place where there can be that kind of frank sharing and and relationship building. Cause I think if I name some of the knots that my family, my Catholic family got tied up in by our Mm -hmm. Catholicism and the anti-blackness undercurrents in it is precisely what you've just said, Maggie, which is the capability for relationship Mm -hmm. with people who are different. You know, I I do think that 
because so much of the Catholic tradition and the parish structure in the Catholic tradition was tied to a particular place that could not move in the same way um, that, you know, Protestant experiences of church could move. There was just such an insular and defensive posture that Catholics had to people who were not of them or of their, even their little parish. And that, that does, you know, that uh, depletes or diminishes our capabilities mm. for relationship. And it's precisely that capability to be curious and not defensive about other people's experience, mm -hmm. um, to really um, want to want to know somebody else's story and somebody else's journey, that new things could be possible both for you and for that person in the context of their relationship with you. Um, so I think your example is a really great one. And who knows, maybe you'll get to a place of you know, there might be a place where you could, you could have a little bit more candid conversation about, especially for the white, the one thing that I notice, and this is hard for me to do is to kind of take a, a bit of an inventory about the way that racism has negatively impacted me or wounded me. And I think that's something that's sometimes hard for white people to do. But I talk in the book about spiritual wages of whiteness that like we mm -hmm. traded in in order to stay in comfortable white spaces where God looks like us and saints look us, like us and hymns and language and stories reinforce our experience. Like, I just think that that, while yes, we're comforted by that, we are not, we are not stretched. We don't grow spiritually mm -hmm. as people, as individuals or as communities as a result of that sameness and comfort. Um, and that I bet if you, I bet all the folks in your group, Maggie would have, if you, if you asked, people would have their own stories to talk about the way that they, even as white women have been wounded by, mm -hmm. wounded by racism, yeah. right? Not in a, like, not in a creating, you know, a hierarchy or Olympics of suffering, um, but more to open one, open each other up to have compassion for the way mm -hmm. that this has done a number on all of us, but most particularly the member of your group who is black. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, you're talking about sameness and earlier you're talking about image of God and how we all have that unique um, stamp of our creator, like on our souls. And um, I've always, you know, I think a lot of people think image of God means that we're all, you know, if we're all created in the image of God, you know, then we all look like God. And, and I don't think that's a physicality at all. And I just think the fact that we have uh, different races and genders and ages mm -hmm. and hair colors and, uh, you know, um, all the things just make us just prove that God is not a human being in heaven, you know, that looks like any one of us. Um, yeah. sorry if that is like offensive to anybody, but I do think that image of God that stamped on us is really more about personality and yeah. soul and uh, heart and uh, yeah. what it looks like to, to actually be love. You know, we, all have an opportunity to go and be love. And I think that that is really what that image of God uniqueness in how we look, but we all have the same uh, stamping to be able to be love out in the world. Yeah. I love the way you put that. The, in the Catholic tradition, we get this fun concept of the Trinity, which is really great mm -hmm. for messing up with all messing with all the <laughs> binaries, right? Yeah. <laughs> It does. And it's really a beautiful thing because there is an ambiguity and a messiness and this threeness and oneness, mm -hmm. but you know, the notion of God as an interrelationship of love is yeah. really, the, is the heart of it. And so when we say that we're created in that image, then it, it means that we're created for 
relationship and a unique complex way of relating um, and that those relationships are meant to be and intended to be and we are instruments for those being grounded in love and so mm-hmm. I amen to that <laughs> thank you, you yeah in one of our the- books in my trinity class they we actually uh it was written about how god couldn't just be uh a duo because mm-hmm. you know if in the the um very clearly like <laughs> privileged uh uh example that the author used was about a a marriage couple you're a couple in marriage and so it's very much you know if if they if it's two people they get married and then they just can create this bubble and they don't ever go out and then it's when they have a child that that is when their bubble expands and they actually start to see more than just them as a family of two now it's a family of three but now like the, the possibilities are endless. And that is why God exists in three is Mm. to show that it's not just a bubble of two, Mm. that God doesn't ever have to leave God's bubble that God, you know, there's three. And then that just shows that it goes outward, which involves all of us. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Trinity classes talk about epiphanies and like, yes. Yeah. yeah. All of those, all of those theologians talking about the Trinity through the generations is really something. Yeah. 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 We had a, a conversation recently on, on this podcast with um, an author named Victoria Lures, and she wrote a book called Church of the Wild. And mm-hmm. she was talking about how uh, the, 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 and I'm going to get all the words wrong probably, but the, the word that has been translated word in like John, in the prologue of John, um, well, it was you know logos in the Greek, but the the original intention was not just word, but a conversation and and a dialogue, um, constant uh, relationship. And so um, you know we've lost that in the re- translation to simply saying word now because it's not just a word; it's mm-hmm. a, it's a full blown relationship. Yeah. A dialogue. I love that. I think mm-hmm. that's great. And one that's still happening, still unfolding. We're still invited mm-hmm. to contribute to and listen to, look for. Yeah. 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 Download the app, download the podcast for like logos. Yeah. Like yes. The dialogue, the God dialogue. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. In your research, Maureen, what, what was the most surprising thing that you learned of your family's history? So this is, I mean, this is too, this is, I'll tell you, this was crazy. My first time doing some work on, in a, like first ever attempt in archives to do some research. I knew that my mother's father built a subdivision in suburban Philadelphia right after World War II. Between 48 and 53, he built about 200 houses. And I had a really strong suspicion that those would have been for white only buyers because he would have used FHA money to get the loan for construction. And then he would have tapped into VA funding for the GIs, you know, to get a mortgage. And all of that was coded for white buyers only. So somebody had said to me, um, and it was in a lot of HOA, like, or yeah, contracts as well. Yeah. Written everywhere. So if we want to talk mm-hmm. about the way that, you know, race did not, isn't just like a, the Richard Rothstein, the scholar uh, who wrote the color of law, who talks about this history in the United States is we like to think that racism just kind of happened. It's de facto. It's kind of by preference and choice. He's like, no, it happened by law. And it did happen by law in Northern cities like Philadelphia, even though we tend to think of it only happening in a Jim Crow South. So he, Richard Rothstein said, go find an article, go find an ad that your grandfather would have taken 
looking out for this housing development because if you find that lingo, then you'll know for sure. So I went to the local historical society, the County Historical Society, and I was like, well, if he bought the land in 1948, I'll start in 1950 and just see what I can find going through the microfilm. So I put the first one on and I'm wheeling through 1950 and I'm not really seeing anything. And then as something whirls by my, you know, goes quickly by my eyes and I bring it back. And here's a story about the parish that they belonged in. And the headline was St. Francis Parish does St. Patrick's Day minstrel time show. And I was like, well, that's very interesting. So I zoom in and I scroll down and there's my mother's name as a first grader and my uncle's name as a second grader and the songs that they sang. And then here's the other songs and here's the make the end men and here's the all male makeup crew. So I, the way I put it in, it was stunning to me. This is the first time I go looking for any details about the interplay of my family's Catholic and racial identities. I go looking for my grandfather's ad for a white only subdivision. And I find my mother and then my uncle in a parish minstrel show on St. Patrick's day in 1950. So that was uncanny. Mm -hmm. And that felt like such a confirmation um, of the spirit really to say, yes, there is something here. Continue, continue to do this work. That was a detail. I did not even, I was bracing myself to find one thing and I found something completely unexpected and then Mm -hmm. did some work to realize that they're not unrelated, right? That black or that Irish Catholics, performed minstrel shows as a way of reclaiming, um, claiming that they were American because initially they parodied Catholics. Um, So it was like, well, we're not going to let you parody us. We're going to do the parodying and we are going to, we're going to, you know, make fun of or mimic or imitate black Hmm. people. And it was a way of, this was something they did in the parishes that they left behind. It was a practice they brought to these new parish halls in the suburbs. And it was like, this is our space. This is our, this is our Catholicism, right? Um, and there's my mother as a first grader. Now she was not in blackface, but they were all there. Like they all saw it. Mm-hmm. They absorbed it in the parish hall, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so it was that, that discovery was just, uh, it was, it was incredibly saddening mm-hmm. and confirming. And did you find anything about the subdivision at all? Um, I know. So I went no. and looked, so I, I, I did not, I went through a couple different archives, like scrolling through the real estate section. So I have yet, to, I did not find the ad, but okay. I'm, I'm, I went and looked at deeds um, in the deeds office and there was no, there were no racial covenants written in on the deeds. Cause that could be another way that sellers would ensure that only black buyers um, would be able to, to purchase home, uh, only white buyers rather would be able to purchase mm-hmm. homes. So I did not see any restrictive covenants written in there, but you know, my, my, my mother's siblings don't remember there being black people because they lived in the farmhouse at the center of this yeah. farmland that became the subdivision. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't remember um, black people in that, in that neighborhood. Um, and I highly doubt that I highly doubt that he would have, even though, and this is the other crazy thing I discovered in this facet, my grandfather's lawyer was a black man. His lawyer mm-hmm. was a black lawyer. So he leaned on a black lawyer to do all of the legal work. And there were some liens on properties and, you know, and he would not have been able to sell that land, sell a house to Mr. Davenport, Horace Davenport, mm-hmm. even if he wanted to. And then Horace Davenport went on to become the first African-American judge in Montgomery County outside of Philadelphia, where that wow. subdivision was and died right before I started this project. And I really regret wow. that I missed an opportunity to speak with him because they were very good. They were good. Um, they were good business partners. My grandfather gave him a lot of business. He helped my grandfather build all sorts of things all over suburban Philadelphia. Um, 
but that must have tied my grandfather in knots not to be able to sell a house to Mr. Davenport. And I would love to talk to my grandfather. Well, how did you, how did you square that? And um, what about your Catholic identity made it possible for you to square that um, and not wrestle with that conundrum? Just another, another topic, just totally unrelated to spiritual direction that I'm interested in is, is how just single family zoning tends to, you know, be very exclusionary and how it allows, you know, it's, it's, it's got racism kind of built into Yes. Just single family zoning. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Well, that's where Richard Rothstein, I mean, if you're interested in this, Christopher, you should definitely read The Color of Law. It's fascinating. And his new project, his new book is like, okay, so if we created laws to do this, we can create laws to undo it. And so he's got all sorts of innovative ways of thinking about how do we, how do we integrate housing? Because if we integrate housing, then we start to integrate all other things that have been Mm -hmm. segregated because housing has been segregated. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And and wow. as far as I know, which I'm nowhere near an expert, but the critical race theory is intended to look at how laws have racism built in, right? Yeah. And how it perpetuates it. Um, mm-hmm. And it's, you know, become such a crazy buzzword and, and, yes. and yeah. you know, yeah. but, yeah. but that, that's the point of, I mean, that that's what it's point. intended to do. Yeah. And maybe one thing that I've been thinking about and might be helpful for people who are offering spiritual direction to folks who are wrestling with this idea or find resistance to this idea, you know, um, in the Catholic tradition, we have Catholic social teaching, which is a body of principles, right, that are to guide our life in common. And one of these principles that, again, much like social sin came from the Latin American context and the bishops is this notion of the preferential option for the poor that we see through um, the Hebrew Bible and the stories in the New Testament that God shows a, a special kind of love for the folks who are on the margins, a special kind of love um, for folks who have been ostracized from community. And the preferential option for the poor says, look at those, look at those uh, experiences of exclusion from the perspective of people who are excluded in order to get the most accurate view and the most mm-hmm. accurate understanding. And so to my mind, that's what critical race theory is attempting to do, helping us see situations from the perspectives of folks who are most negatively impacted by them because they can mm-hmm. see it most clearly, right? Mm-hmm. Kind of coming back to that idea of white-sidedness that we talked about in the beginning. It's very hard for white people to name our whiteness, but talk to any black person you trust and they'll help you see yeah. your whiteness and the way that it's showing up um, and the way that it's impacting even your relationship with them. So uh, to me, I think we've got to just kind of reclaim that or reclaim that as having uh, critical race theory. It's not really a theory. It's a, it's a kind of relating. It's a way mm-hmm. of relating with an attention to the fact that, you know, um, social injustices do not impact everybody equally. And if we really want to solve them, then let's figure out how they impact the people most harmed. Because if we address that, then we're likely going to change the way they mm-hmm. ne- negatively impact other people mm-hmm. as well. Well, yeah. that goes back to the conversation, the, the importance of dialoguing to actually yeah. hear mm-hmm. someone else's story. Cause it's really hard to, to hear someone's story and then look them in the face and say, I don't think that any of that happened. I don't think your experience is true, mm-hmm. you know? And so it's, At a minimum, it's accepting that, oh, this does happen because I just heard it from someone's mouth that this happened to. And I just, I think that's kind of where compassion starts for people that, that have never listened before. Yeah. 
And like in the Christian tradition, thank God as we're in the, and you know, we're in Lent, we have a God who knows that about our condition. And after the crucifixion had to appear to people and say, I know you don't believe it. So touch, <laughs> yeah. touch me. I mean, feel, feel this woundedness, not in a way to, to blame you or to shame you, but to release you from all of the unhelpful emotions you might have about it so that you can move to the Pentecost moment, which comes mm. next. Right. And embrace the gifts again, the unique gifts that you have being made in the image of God to contribute what you have to this movement of love coming back to Maggie's way of thinking about God. Um, so thank God we have that kind of that kind of God in our in our tradition who knows us so well. I feel like every pastor in America needs to use that as a um, <laughs> as like a, every the image that you just used of of, Hey, like touch me, like know that this is real. And then uh, let's move, let's dialogue and move past this, not past it, but let's, um, embrace the truth so we can move forward to a Pentecost moment. You know, yeah. I just, I'm yeah. like, that'll preach me. <laughs> well, you know, this might be one of the reasons Catholic women aren't given the uh, pulpit, <laughs> not about me, but like, because it would open up so many different, you yeah. know, so many different perspectives to, to, to breaking open the word of God. And yeah. And I have to say like that image or that, that notion of um, an embodied an embodied uh, a wounded resurrected Jesus. Mm -hmm. I got from a, or I read from a liberation theologian, Roberta yeah. Gleta, right. Mm -hmm. And again, it's because the folks closest to suffering they're they're not afraid of that suffering. Whereas those of us who maybe are buffered from it, we are incredibly afraid of it. Mm -hmm. Um because it's something that we can sometimes have a little more choice about or, or control yeah. over where other communities do not. And so they have a very different relationship and understanding of a God who's incredibly present and journeys with them in those moments. How has the, uh, what you've learned about your history and your family and, and your Catholic faith, faith um, how has it changed how you approach your work and your interpersonal relationships, just yeah. everything about your life? <laughs> That's another really, really good question. I am grateful this work has created, at least in my immediate family. And so, and my, my, my father was one of two and his older brother is no longer alive, but my mom's siblings are all alive. And um, for all but one of them, um, there has just been really good dialogue about this, that they have ta they're talking to each other about this. I interviewed each of them and we're just much more frank and much more um, comfortable and being candid about the failings of the individual members of our family. And then also the really, really resilient things, right? So that same grandfather who, you know, built the all white subdivision, the family was wealthy enough to have a black housekeeper and, her name was Lillian and my grandfather paid into her social security, even though he was not legally mm -hmm. obligated to do that by the federal government, right? Another way in which um, mm -hmm. social welfare, like mortgages or social security was distributed according mm -hmm. to race. So it just gives us the freedom to be more comfortable with our failings um, and less defensive. And that is, uh, has been a really good thing. I think the way that um, it changes the way that I, that I, I'm trying to have it change the way I teach. 
So I try as much as possible to create opportunities for students to tell story and tell their story about their identity and to do so as, as much as they're comfortably, as much as they feel comfortable doing so with each other so that we get a sense of who's in the room when we're talking about things, that we get a sense of kind of belonging to one another because we've made ourselves vulnerable enough to kind of share, um, share some of these stories. And I think that, that um, that's a pedagogical practice that I am, you know, uh, I sort of discovered and in some classes do more of than in others. Um, and then I guess the last thing I would say, and, and this is something that's evolved since the book came out, but I've gotten really involved in the synod process here um, in Philadelphia and, um, and this way of relating through presence. And I think um, as a theologian, I'm discerning sort of what might be coming next. And I think so many times Catholic feminist theologians, um, there's so much that we have to do because um, the access to being able to do it is still relatively new. And there's still a lot of work to do um, in undoing the knots of sexism in our church, but also just the importance of presence and being. Um, and so that's why I really appreciate like Maggie sharing her example of her, of her faith sharing community, just figuring out the synod process is really just about how to be church by traveling intentionally together. And so I think that, you know, I, I hope that this book will be a tool that helps meet that moment or helps, helps people, um, Catholics in this process really attend to journeying together and together with you know, as most an expansive way of thinking together as we're, as we're capable of. So yeah, there's some spiritual practices in here that I've been, I've been trying out as opposed to just intellectually trying to engage, you know, racism as a social problem. Mm -hmm. And that's been really great too. Um, Cause our traditions are full of resources of people who can assist us with this and witnesses and poetry and imagery and artifacts and ritual. Um, like I want to try to write a novena for each chapter of the mm -hmm. book, for example, right? Which is different than writing a, like writing the end notes, but itself is kind of good work of saying, look, here's how you could continue to tap into your tradition yeah. uh, to experience this kind mm -hmm. of undoing. Chris and I had a professor in the seminary that uh, always would say that our stories are the curriculum of our lives. Wow, you know, and so uh, the like that just goes back to you know, part of our story is our tradition and our, the people that came before us. And so like that just, I just, I feel like that's just like describes like why it's so important to dialogue and to learn and to, um, to, there's a girl in my small group that says it's not enough just to have the head knowledge and have it come out of your hands, yeah. but it has to be head into your heart yeah. and then it flow out through your hands. And I feel like it doesn't get to the heart, to your heart until you truly have, you learn the curriculum of someone else's story, you know, and apply that to, yeah. to your life so that it comes out, you know, there's actual application through mm -hmm. your hands no, to do the work. I really, like that. I really like that. And whiteness keeps us, especially white academicness keeps us all, yep. all up here. And so how to settle into like, how to settle into some truths, no matter how uncomfortable because, um, yeah, owning them liberates us from that sin of captivity, I think. Well, um, I think this is a good time to wind it down. Um, and we like to ask 
every guest the same last question. Mm-hmm. Uh, Maureen, who or what is God to you now? Mm-hmm. And has that image changed any over your mm-hmm. um, your life or the recent past? Yeah, I mean, in at least in connection to the book and then this work now that I've started to do with this synod process, I think it's less of a God who wants me to do good um, and more a notion of God who wants me to be good. Um, and I know that might seem like just a slight semantic difference, but I think it gets to that notion of presence and this realization that, um, you know, God's love is not anything that we earn. It's something that's always readily available to us. And so how to become undone or, or undo the knots that keep us, you know, from acknowledging and basking in and, and being immersed in that, that loving presence um, so that we can be that kind of loving presence to other people.